You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. Starting in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are light. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp, put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We ask you to to guide us. Lord, we look at a portion of of one of the most famous sermons that you preached. Lord, and I pray that you would now in turn guide us into truth. Lord, we pray that that we would see Jesus clearly, that the gospel would be made known and, and proclaimed, that our hearts might be warmed by its truth and its beauty. Lord, and as we approach this table this morning, may our lives be given to you in such a way that we find rest in what you have done for us on the cross. In these things we pray, in the precious name of Jesus, amen. Now you may be if, if you look in your bulletin, I, I believe it's in your, your bulletin or the, the insert bulletin, I think there's a, a portion of the, the membership agreement uh, that's it's also out on the, the back wall, the whole thing. We've been taking the last Sundays of the, the month and just talking a, a little bit about those, those statements. We're on the, the fifth one. And we're not going to say everything there is to say about that, but we are definitely using that. And you'll see as we get into this, why? I was thinking through this, and I read a satirical piece the other day on, on social media, and it was entitled, Modern Day Rebel Plans to Grow Up, Get Married, and Then Be a Productive Member of Society. I mean, even the, the title is kind of funny, right? But then you got to ask yourself, why is that funny? Because a, a rebel is, is somebody who goes against societal norms. To rebel really would be uh, to not get married and uh, to not have kids and to not become as like this kid's dad in the article, or the kid is in the article said, like my dad. This brought another question to my mind, and that is, how do we often look at ourselves? Do we see ourselves as those who are striving, uh, who are striving to be, or who we are now? 
Not saying that we are rebels and should see ourselves in light of who we're striving to be. Just kind of forget about the article title for a moment. But I would suggest that often we see ourselves through uh, rose-colored glasses a little bit. We desperately want to see ourselves as who we want to be. The problem with that is that it never measures up to who we should be. Does that make sense? We desperately want to see ourselves as who we should be. But the problem is that never measures up. If we look at ourselves as who we really are, we often see the the sinner, the rebel, and we think the only option then is to see ourselves for who we want to be. And I think we often read a text like this one before us in Matthew 5 to mean that we ought to be salt and light to the world around us. But then an honest look at ourselves will show that we're not doing that. For we constantly mess up. We give the world around us reasons to reject Christ on the basis of our own imperfections. I mean, it sounds harsh, but it's true, isn't it? If I told you that you are to be the salt and the light of the world, to go and let your light shine so that people will see your good works and give glory to God in heaven, we might say, yes, that sounds right. It sounds like Matthew 5, 13 through 16. But honestly, honestly then, looking at ourselves, what do people notice? People don't notice the good things that we want them to notice. I mean, if we go out and our whole purpose is to do these good things so that people are going to notice the good things that we do so that they're going to glorify God in heaven, the problem is, is that we can't say this is what you're supposed to notice. Instead, people pick up on our hypocrisy and our foolish behavior. The decisions that we make that are totally self-serving. How we've treated our, our neighbors around us, the people in our life. Things that we don't even give a, a second to, of thought, are the things that those around us pick up on. And if somebody wants an excuse to reject the faith that we have, they really need to look no further than you or I. So for us to suggest otherwise, say, wait a minute, somebody looks at my life, they see Jesus. And that would be radically self-righteous. We know that isn't true. But the fact is, if I told you that you are to go and be salt and light so that people will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven, I would be misquoting these verses. But it's often how we read them, isn't it? We read them in a way to, to put pressure on us. Go be this. Go do this. It doesn't say that you are to be the salt of the earth. 
It says, you are the salt of the earth. Verse 14 doesn't say, you are to go be the light of the world. It says, you are the light of the world. Often when we read scripture, we mistake indicatives for imperatives. Those are big words. I'm going to use them a lot, but I'm going to define them a lot too. Or, say it a different way, we mistake declarations of what God has done with commands that we are to do. An imperative would be, you go and do this. You go and make disciples of all nations. Imperative. You go be salt and light. Imperative. Indicative, on the other hand, is you are the salt of the earth. You are saved by grace. You are a child of God. Vodi Bakum defines these terms like this. He says that an indicative tells us who we are because of what Christ has done. And an imperative then is a command. It's what we ought to do based on the indicative. Following me? So it should be done. You shall not steal. So when it comes to the verses before us, do you see how often we confuse the two? We read verses 13 and 14 as imperatives, as commands. When they're not commands, they're indicatives. You are the salt of the earth. It's who you are based on what God has done in your life. You are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. The imperative, then, isn't until verse 16. And it isn't a command to be salt or light. It's a command to be who you are because of what God has done. You are the light. Therefore, do what light does. Light shines. It doesn't sit under a bushel. You be what salt is. It doesn't sit on the ground to be trampled under feet. It preserves, it gives flavor, it does things in the world around you. You do this. This changes things, doesn't it? I mean, if we take verses 13 and 14 as imperatives, then think about this for a moment. Follow through. If we take them as the imperatives, as commands, then it is our behavior that becomes the determining factor as to, well, as to whether people will see the Christian faith as viable or not. I would think that if that's the way we looked at things, it would be pretty easy to get disillusioned when we start placing so much weight on our shoulders. Think about it another way. If we confuse indicatives or imperatives here, we then become the determining factor of whether somebody comes to faith or not. Because they see the good in us, they come to faith. I would actually suggest that when somebody that knows us comes to faith, they come to faith in spite of us, not because of us. 
we have no room to boast about ourselves because we often mess up. We always fall short. And anyone that knows us, anyone that gets to to know us, anyone that we seriously invite into our lives sees our imperfections. They realize this fact. This guy that I know that claims to be a Christian is not perfect. It's not that people see your greatness and come to faith. It's that people start seeing the object of your faith. When you start inviting people into your life, you guys didn't know them. They don't see how great you are. They see how great the one is that you that they you put your trust in. They start seeing the gospel, start seeing your reliance and your dependence on Jesus Christ. But this brings up a, an important question. And that is, how can Jesus say here that you are salt, you are light, when in reality, you're not? You know, kind of hammered that part home a little bit. We mess up. We so often do not shine light so that other people see Jesus in one respect, because, I mean, if we start seriously looking at ourselves, we actually, in in some instances, push people away. People would see us and see who we really are when the spotlight's not on us. Remember the definition of an indicative that Cody Bauckham gives. It tells us who we are because of what Christ has done. So we are light. Not because of something that we have done, but because of what he has done on our behalf. I don't think we can adequately talk about verse 16, the imperative found there, without understanding the indicative in verses 13 and 14. In other words, the only way that one can be the light on the hill and let their light shine is for them to understand that they are light in spite of themselves, not because of themselves. Understand that they are light because that it is through the gospel of Jesus Christ that we have been transferred from one kingdom to another. Kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Christ Jesus. Listen to to Colossians chapter 1. Start in verse 9. Notice the the imperatives and indicatives in in these verses. He's praying, so the the imperatives are in the the form of a, a prayer, but still they're things that we ought to do. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased praying for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to God the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. 
Notice all the things that we're supposed to do. Paul is praying for these people to to carry on, to do, strive, be filled with knowledge and understanding, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to to bear fruit, to, to endure life with patience and joy, just to name a few. But all of these things are based on an indicative, which is that God delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of Jesus. Because it is in him we have been redeemed. We have been bought. We have been purchased from the slave market of sin. We are no longer ours, but we are his. And our sins are forgiven. He has dealt with our sins once and for all. Therefore, we can go out and do these things. It's the same thing in Matthew 5. The reason we can let our light shine is that we recognize what God has done. We recognize who we are because of what he has done in us, that we actually are light and our job then is to just do what light does and to set ourselves on top of a hill so it can shine. So don't go hide in a, in a bedroom. Don't go hide someplace where people don't see you, but get involved in the lives of people. Let your light shine. The salt of the earth because he took us from something that was useless something that was worthless and gave us purpose. He made us salt. We were once in darkness, but now we are light so that people might see and glorify God because God is on display in us. So we see here that that we are light. We are salt. We are light. And if you're a believer, you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you believe the gospel and Jesus Christ is your only hope in, in life and death, then you too, your salt, your light that he's talking about here. That much is clear from the passage. But we as Christians are often very inward focused. Think about the way that we understand the gospel so many times. The gospel is for us, and then our life in Christ, the purpose of that is to improve our life. In other words, sometimes we think we're the end of our own salvation. We think that God saving us is for us. So that we then would turn internally, right? Somebody went out of themselves. They shared the gospel with us. We come to faith. We place our faith and trust in Christ. It is for us. So then we turn inward and we improve our own life and we grow. And faith becomes so personal and so self-seeking And the problem with this is that it puts faith in Jesus Christ at odds with the mission of the church. Evangelism and outreach then become the task of other people. Our job is to worry about number one in our relationship with Jesus. Evangelism and outreach is is other people. It's for the other people in the church, specific groups, For those on the the missions committee, those who deal with this kind of thing, parachurch ministries, that's why we have them. After all, we have enough to worry about right here, at home, in our own Christian walk. 
So when we disconnect sanctification, growing in godliness from the mission of the church, we disconnect our lives from those around us because the Christian faith becomes more about us than others. There's a flip side, and I should say this, that that many have gone to the other extreme. They emphasize outreach and mission to such a degree that they miss the impact of the gospel on themselves personally. For them, outreach doesn't come from growth, but outreach is growth. It goes back to the imperatives and the indicatives. And this is why, and this is the point that I, that I really wanted to make here. The, the imperatives or the commands, what we are to do, these are always based on indicatives. The commands are based on who we are in Christ and because of what Christ has done for us. So in the text before us, the only way that we can be the light of the world, the city that is on a hill, that is not hidden, is because God in Christ Jesus first made us to be light. So, what bearing does this have on the statement, on the membership agreement in your bulletin that we're looking at today? Let me just, let me just read that. You look at it in your bulletin, it says this. We will strive by God's grace and power to live out a faithful Christian witness in the world. In denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we will seek to fulfill our calling to lead a holy life and to be salt and light. Notice, the end, to fulfill our calling, to fulfill what we were called to. You were called by God. This isn't just a Bethel Church thing. This is a gospel thing. You were called to lead a holy life. Why he saved you, to be salt and light, so that people would see you and glorify your Father in heaven. So, for us to, to live this statement out, we need to understand the imperatives and the indicatives in Scripture. And specifically, I think Matthew 5, 13 through 16, because the statement here ends by saying that we'll fulfill our calling by being salt and light and living a holy life. I think there is some interesting language here. Let's just start at the beginning of the statement. We're not going to get through it all. We're just going to get to the beginning, actually. But notice what we are agreeing to. We will strive. Stop there in the statement. I mean, I think, I think we get caught up here without continuing to read the rest because... As we continue to read here, we just learn how it is that the Christian strives. I would say that the Christian life is hard. I would never say that the Christian life is easy. I mean, I think that's what the, the statement points out. That the Christian life is hard, that we strive. The word strive indicates something that is difficult, that we push through. The word means to make great efforts to achieve something. That's the idea. And we need to be careful with that word here. Some have gotten the idea that God saves us, and then it is up to us to strive forward. God saves us, 
Gives us a little pat on the back, and then we strive to achieve something. Some believe we are not saved by striving, in other words, but we're sanctified by striving. They would say, if I want to be a good Christian, then I do this and I do that. And we religiously do these things, do our devotions every day, not so much to hear from God, but to say that we've done them, or because that's our habit. The Christian life becomes a, a checklist of, of do's and, and don'ts, and we just start ticking things off a, a list. And the striving becomes, for the lack of a better word, law-keeping. I would suggest something different. I believe the, the scriptures present something different, and that is that the striving, the, the pressing forward in the Christian life, the running the race, whatever other analogies there are in scripture, isn't by our own effort, but by the grace of God. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, we're told that God started a, a good work in us and he is faithful and just to complete it. In other words, what God started in eternity past, what he started at the beginning, bringing us to faith in Jesus, he will complete by sanctifying us, growing us in godliness and glorifying us, getting us to heaven. So both justification, declaring us right, and sanctification, the process of making us right, or making us good, are a work of God's grace in the life of the believer. We saw this in Romans 8 as well, in what we call the, the golden chain of redemption. <laughs> that those that, that God, whom he, he predestined, are the same ones he called to faith, the same ones he called to faith are the ones that he justified, he made right, and those are the same ones that he made right are the ones he ultimately glorified. That's verse 30. If we back up just one verse, you learn that the whole purpose of predestination there is to be conformed to the image of God. I think the statement reflects this in the word strive. Not by our own effort, but by God's grace and God's power. In other words, I would suggest that we as Christians are to always go back to the indicative of who we are because of what God has done. I would say that the Christian life is hard because we are always fighting against the propensity to strive in our own effort. Did you get that? Why is the Christian life so hard? The Christian life is hard because we're always fighting against the propensity to strive in our own effort. When we do this, when we strive in our own effort, we get frustrated or we give up. Or we just become satisfied with a minimal effort. Huh? This is the best I can do. This must be good enough. <coughs> or perhaps it pushes us harder. When we strive in our own effort, we just we say, well, I messed up. I got to try harder. I got to do more. And it isn't long before that leads to frustration in the end, too, because growth doesn't happen like we think it should. 
I wonder how many of you have had this same thought as me. Something like this. I'm 42 years old. Substitute your own age. However old you are. And you think, you know, I should be further along by now. I... I shouldn't be struggling with the same things that I struggle with in my teens, but I am. Yeah, I realize I've gotten wiser over the years. Thank God I'm not as dumb as I was in my 20s. But I still struggle with many of the same things, and it's extremely frustrating. As Christians, we strive to always go back to the indicatives to what Christ has done. That he was perfect where we are not. That where we continue to to mess up and, and fall short in the same things over and over again. Where we think, I should be better than this by now. He was better than that. And he did it for us. He paid the price for our sin for us. We go back to the indicatives. We look at what Christ has done, and then we rest in that. We trust in that. To use the language of John 15, we abide in him. We rest in the gospel. In in the fact that in Christ, we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. We don't have to strive to become that by our own effort. That's who we are in Christ. And we rest in that. And when you rest in that and you trust in what Christ has done, then you're free to let your light shine. When you realize who you are in Jesus Christ, what the gospel has done, that it's not your own effort, it's not your own striving. It's a reliance on him and what he has done for you. When you immerse yourself in gospel truths, then you're free to let your light shine. You're free to live your life before others. You're free to invite them into your life without fear of repercussion because you recognize that as you fall and depend on the gospel in your life, other people see this as well. You're not responsible for the light that emanates from God's creation. God is. I'm not trying to be something that we're not. We realize who we are. Not because of our own striving, but because of Jesus strived perfectly for us. He lived a perfect life that was perfect, righteous. And his righteousness then becomes ours through faith. That when we place our faith and trust in him, that his perfect righteousness is transferred to us. That's who we are. We're righteous in the sight of God. We are light because our sin was taken care of on the cross. The wrath and the punishment that we deserve was placed on Jesus Christ and he bore it for us. And now we are free. Free to rest in what he has done for us. Free to let our light shine. Free to be obedient. Not out of obligation. Not because you are better than anybody else. But because Christ freed you. And you're not obligated to the law to to win the approval of God. Our delight now is to be obedient because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And this is exactly why we celebrate here at the Lord's table. It's remembering what Jesus Christ has done for us. 
This meal isn't so much about imperatives. It isn't, it isn't about commands as it is the indicatives. The meal is, is sitting back and recognizing what has been done on our behalf. So coming to this table is resting in that. Leaving the table is where we start to strive by God's grace and God's power. We trust in the indignity. We trust in who we are in Christ, what he has made us to be. And then we live out our life, a faithful Christian witness in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, seeking to fulfill our calling to lead a holy life, to be salt and light. I think it's pretty good wording of what we are to do based on who we are in Christ. In just a few moments, we're going we're gonna to have a time of, of communion together. We're going to come to the Lord's table. And today, we've used some, some language about coming to rest in this. So it would be fitting if, if today we get up from our seats and we come to the table. There is a, a picture there. We come here and we reflect on what Christ has done on our behalf. And as we reflect on what he's done for us, that his body was broken, his blood was, was shed for us, that he has made us to be salt and light then we turn and we walk back to our seats, recognizing what he has made us to be. Determined to stand on top of the hill and to let our light shine, not because of some inherent goodness in us, not because we're better than anybody else, but because of what he has done here. Let me pray and then the music will start. Just take a a few moments there at your, at your seat. And just contemplate what he has done for you. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you recognize the fact that you've been striving in your own effort. Perhaps you know that you are a, a believer, but, ha- but you just... You just realize I need to depend on the gospel in my life. I need to turn and I need to recognize what Christ has done. This is an opportunity for you to do that. Turn from your sin and turn toward Christ. Perhaps you're here this morning and you realize that all of this talk about salt and light you realize that you are not. You are not light. That you can't become light on your own. That God does that. We're born again. This morning, place your faith and trust in what Jesus Christ has done for you.
that his body, his blood was, was broken for you, that he bore the weight of sin that you could not bear. Sin that you deserve to pay eternity for, he bore on the cross for you. Turn to him. Trust in what he has done for you. Embrace him this morning. And you too will be light. And you too will be a visible display before all of the world that God saves sinners and that he saves other people around us. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad. 